I see uh, good marketing as making a brand relevant and increasing the probability that uh, you would want to try that brand amongst the other brands that you buy. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we explore ideas and practices that you can apply to help you create new futures with your family and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Daniel Epstein. Daniel is a marketing and innovation consultant based in Toronto, Canada. He was 21 years in P&G marketing and was awarded the Harley Proctor Marketeer designation in 2007, one of 20 in the history of P&G. He led P&G's future of marketing and brand building and was responsible for the commercial leadership of some of the most iconic brands at P&G. Daniel led P&G's $9 billion Tide and REL brand franchise in the developed world, as well as P&G's commercial innovation effort that produced over $1 billion in value over a 10-year period. As he traveled the globe in his marketing role, Daniel developed a fascinating project he called Portraits in Faith, in which he interviewed 450 people of faith in 27 countries. This enabled Daniel to bring together his passion for the healing process and for meeting people of different faiths and cultures with his love of travel and photography. I initially met Daniel and then collaborated with him when he led the future of marketing and brand building group at PNG. In this conversation, I explore with Daniel how brain science is shaping the future of marketing his insights about his time at P&G, and the journey he believes we are all on. Here, then, is my conversation with Daniel. So, Daniel, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Let me first ask, how are you, and what are you doing these days? Where have you been traveling to recently? Um, Well, I live in Toronto, where I am a family man for the first time in my life. I As you know, I got married two years ago at the age of 51 for the first time, and I'm very blessed to have an amazing wife and two lovely stepsons, ages 10 and 12. So first and foremost, uh, I'm learning how to be a husband and a father. And uh, second of all, I'm traveling, as you say, in my consultancy that is focused on marketing as behavior change, which we can talk about more. So wonderful. So perhaps we'll touch family a bit later, but let me first ask you to give me a high level understanding of the kind of work you're doing today and how you approach behavior change in marketing and innovation. I consult in two different ways today. I either do solo work where I'm training a new brand building framework that's rooted in cognitive and behavioral science, or um, working with several different PhDs, primarily uh, Dr. David Neal out of Miami and 
Dr. Pete Foley out of Las Vegas. And we focus on solving marketing problems as human behavior problems. So we approach it like the social sciences teach social and behavioral psychologists to analyze behavior problems. And it's, a, it's been a very fulfilling uh, consultancy so far. So you say that most marketing efforts only focus on half of what it takes to grow a brand. What do you mean by that? And explain that, that idea, that concept. Well, there's very good data now, really good scientific data, that attitudes and intentions are actually poor predictors of habitual behavior. And really, it's the strength of the habit and the, the actions that are repeating themselves over and over again or are being repeated in a context, in a location, or a time frame that is similar. Really, it's the strength of the habit that is more predictive of consumer choice and human choice than attitudes and intentions. And yet, really, a lot of companies, certainly a lot of consumer packaged goods companies, but really any product or service company is quite focused on consumer purchase intention or attitudes about their brand. And yet these are actually not the dominant driver of choice. So we try to look at some of these non-conscious elements, some of these non-conscious cues that are having a big impact on consumer behavior. So the implication is that we are not as conscious and as sapient as a species as we thought we are. Well, actually, we're smarter than we realize, because if we were to make every decision consciously and deliberately and analytically, we would die. It would, it would be maladaptive for us to concentrate on which toilet paper really would be best for our family this week. It would be maladaptive if we spent hours deciding what restaurant to go to. It would be uh, maladaptive if we were to analyze at length which hotel to stay in in a particular city. And even when we think we are doing those things deliberately, we're often using tools and cues that are signals to us, non-conscious signals. So if we Let's take, for example, the most the, the, a situation where you'd really want to do a lot of deep research. You go to the doctor and he or she tells you that you've got some strange disease. Well, the first thing you do is you'd go home and you'd Google it. You wouldn't probably use Bing. And you would uh, probably only look at the first few responses, not all nine, ten pages or longer. Uh, so even in the most deliberate of decisions, we use many heuristics and many, many cues that get us to a good enough answer as fast as possible. Okay, so explain in concrete examples, if you can, what is the distinction that you make between a cognitive or a conscious engagement strategy and behavioral conversion strategy? What will, for example be the, the distinction if you worked on a particular brand or a product? Well, if you were working on attitudes or intentions only, you might uh, engage in a marketing campaign that 
causes people to feel a certain way about your brand. So, for example, let's say we're going to engage in some activities that are going to cause consumers to feel that Pampers is the trusted authority in baby development. And um, as a result, consumers will buy our brand, Pampers. But that's actually not the way the human brain works. Uh, the way the human brain works is much, first of all, it's much more probabilistic than deterministic. So it's a matter of probabilities whether you buy Pampers or Huggies at the next shopping trip. And as a marketer, we want to increase the probability that you'll buy, let's say, Pampers. And so we can do that by engaging both the conscious and the non-conscious. The conscious is still very important. We have to give people all the same reasons to buy Pampers. It's a superior dryness. Your baby can sleep overnight. Maybe it's thinner. Maybe it has more advanced fasteners and fits better. So all those things are conscious. But you also want to give non-conscious cues that will improve the probability that people will buy uh, Pampers. One of the best examples I can give is from the developing world where hand washing is a real issue. And uh, so one of the things that's turned out to be most effective among children, teaching them to wash their hands after going to the toilet, is they put little colored footprints from the toilet to the sink. And they, tell, they teach the kids, washing your hands is good for you, you'll get less disease, you won't spread disease. They make it morally repugnant to not wash your hands after the toilet. Uh, but those are all conscious messages. It's the feet, it's the little colored footprints on the floor uh, to the sink that actually get the child to the sink. What creates a new habit out of it is the combination of the conscious and the non-conscious. So you might say the most effective marketing combines the rational conscious messages with non-conscious cues that cue behavior, especially habitual behavior. And when we talk about non-conscious behavioral cues, we are talking about some other sensory stimuli in the example you gave, you see something that That's guides right. you in a certain direction. Yeah, two of the most powerful cues can be color and shape. Uh, the brain processes color and shape long before it processes words. So that's why having a key icon for, for a brand or a service or whatever it is you're trying to get people to choose, having a very clear and consistent, distinct icon that is of a particular color. We even have research that shows that when the icon has movement in it, people notice it faster and they stay on it longer. So there's all kinds of scientific research now about what increases the probability that your brand will be chosen at the next purchase occasion or next usage occasion. Fascinating. So brain science and uh, the convergence of brain science with all these fields is, is partly what's um, pushing and promoting these um, insights and new science that, that's emerging. Absolutely. Well, if you think about it, it's, it's almost funny that the science of human behavior and human decision-making hasn't been part of marketing. Right. Daniel, how do you answer 
a, a fringe friend who says to you, I detest all marketing campaigns. All they try to do is to manipulate me. Mm. Well, you can't, you can't make somebody do, they don't, do something they don't want to do. And I don't see that that is what marketing is about. I see uh, good marketing as making a brand relevant and increasing the probability that you would want to try that brand amongst the other brands that you buy. Um, you really, you can't make somebody do something that's not in their best interest. And good marketing is just making the brand relevant for somebody and increasing the, their awareness of the brand. So the next time they want to purchase something in that category, the odds will increase that they would purchase you. We know that there's actually very little loyalty out there. And, and that's adaptive as well. It's, it's adaptive. It's good for survival that we have many choices. And so uh, a lot of marketing just has to increase the probability that you're chosen over a competitor. This comment you just made about loyalty, is this a generational shift or has it always been the case? We believe it's always been the case. Really, what we say is that consumers are loyal switchers and that very few people are 100% loyal. What is most in keeping with human behavior is we would say, you know, honey, you're going to the store, please pick up some laundry detergent. It's unlikely that that phrase would be followed by, you know, please pick up Tide with bleach, uh, 100 scoop pack powder. You know, it's just, it's an unnecessary amount of detail. And if we, if we had to think in those terms all day long, our, our life would become burdened very quickly. What we know is that the brain takes about 25% of the, of the body's energy. And the brain has to shift some of these tasks to habitual systems. You know, this is, this is part of the advancing of the science of human decision-making as well. We went from a world where economists were telling us that we were, we were rational actors needing to look at utility of every potential option and then making the best decision. We know that that's not the way human beings operate today. That led to a field called bounded rationality, where we know that we have to satisfice and make a good enough decision as fast as possible. And really the world that we're in now, which is referred to as dual systems theory, uh, which was made popular by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, and his deceased partner, Amos Tversky. They popularized this idea that the brain operates with system one and system two, and that we rely on system one to make habits and, and systems out of decisions we have to make. The, the best example is how you drive to work. You don't think about it rationally and consciously. You just do it. And if it wasn't for this ability to delegate tasks to system one, we would just run out of energy. Right, right. And, and so the implication also that evolutionarily, the, the, the brain is wired to energy conservation. And that is the, the built-in biological system or, or imperative that drives an, an accelerated delegation as, as quickly as possible to automated habitual system one 
such that frees you up or frees the brain up to engage with, with new higher tasks or with new requirements. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So let me trace a bit back and ask you, how did you get to P&G in the first place and into brand marketing and research? And, and um, how did you stumble upon that as what you were going to do professionally? Well, I started my career as a miserable CPA in Boston. <laughs> I, uh, I actually liked a lot of the technical theory. I passed the CPA exam when I was still in college, but I, um, I, I wasn't that great at practicing it. I really, uh, I didn't like being given a time budget uh, that I had to follow. And I found the environment to be very constraining but I learned a lot, and it's a great background to have. But uh, after working in a, at the time, big eight accounting firm, and then in a high-tech uh, startup, I went back to business school at Northwestern, the Kellogg School, and uh, I magically became a marketer, and uh, poof, uh, and I was fortunate to uh, get an internship with Procter & Gamble, and then I returned full-time to Procter & Gamble. Little did I know that I would be spending 21 years there. It uh, was a phenomenal experience, and uh, it was the real marketing school that I went to, uh, even though I'm very grateful for Kellogg and learned a lot there. You know, uh, 21 years at P&G was just a real gift. I, uh, I spent my first six years in the oral care division, so products like Crest and Crest toothbrushes and Fix-It-Int and Scope. And then, uh, and then I spent uh, about 12 years in the fabric care division, uh, working on Tide and Ariel uh, detergents and Downy and Lenore fabric softeners. And it was in the fabric care area that I really uh, accelerated my fascination with uh, brands and brand building and became more of a teacher uh, in the company. Mm. Let me f uh, quickly trace back to that earlier choice point and, and decision. How long were you what you call the miserable CPA? <laughs> um, well, in total, I was a CPA for five years. Okay. So because the reason I ask is because the, the lesson and the proof point from that is it is possible to make course correction. It is possible for somebody to find a certain path and two years later or five years later say, you know, that's not what I am meant to be doing and get back in the school and search again to find what it is that you're meant to be doing. That, that's the lesson that I hear in, in that early trial and error exploration. Uh, yes. And I just would add, um, it's very hard to make that course correction because speaking for myself, I was very young. I was in my early twenties and uh, it was the first time other than a year in Jerusalem. It was the first time I was living away from home. And so I don't think I was emotionally or socially mature enough to really understand what wasn't working. And uh, in retrospect, there were two things that weren't working. One was the work, while fascinating to me in school, 
was uh, painful uh, in in practice. And so I, I actually didn't like the work as much as I thought I would. But I think the other lesson I learned was fit, the importance of fit with the organization you're working in. I recall interviewing with another firm that I thought people were amazing, but I didn't think the clients they had were, were all that interesting. And so I chose, uh, I chose another firm. And uh, in retrospect, I realized we're always, a person is always better off in an organization in which they feel they fit uh, personality-wise, culturally. And I, I counsel people when I'm talking to them about their careers to never choose a more prestigious organization or an organization maybe who has the right clients if you feel you don't fit. I think not having fit is pretty much the kiss of death. Right, right. I share in my book, uh, Create New Futures, a story of a dialogue I've had with my son during his university years where he is able to articulate for himself the most important thing that he is meant to be learning in those early stages is learning how he learns best and learning what he is like and what energizes him and, and learn about his talents and inclinations and passions. And I think the point in your story is it, it took you a number of years to, in that space, space of being a CPA, to discover that you're not happy. My guess, partly based on the way I know you, you are a, a social creature. You need the stimulating, intellectually stimulating interaction with people, and you probably were not getting that opportunity in that space. But the, the point there, again, that we are meant to, especially in the early formative years of our careers, and then later again, be learning about who are we as we learn about a profession, as we learn about variety of skills that we are going to be able to use and apply, still the most important learning is the interior learning. Who are you? What are you like? What do you like doing? Where do you shine and excel most? And it, it strikes me that that was part of your discovery through these transitions along your journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that to bridge to another one of your constructs, the three horizons, I, I believe that we can only work so hard at designing our perfect future. I, I believe that I have worked hard all along, even as a CPA. Uh, I worked hard, even though I was miserable. I didn't understand why. And I feel that I worked very hard at Procter & Gamble, but I couldn't have always painted a picture of the three horizons, maybe horizon one. But I think had I tried to stick with my version of horizon two and horizon three, I would have undersold what the universe had in store for me. And so, and I suspect that you, you would agree that horizons two and three become clearer as they become horizon one. Yes, and those are iterative, continually iterative discovery processes. And so the way we frame Horizon 3 in, in the book and the way I work and have worked with you as well is that we continue to 
redefine and reimagine Horizon 3 as we gain new insights about ourselves, about the ecosystem. And the point is that we, we are meant to be concurrently thinking in, in these terms of inquiring into the more distant future, which is partly a, a pivoting exercise to help us escape the gravitational dominance, the gravitational pull of current conditions. That is really one of the main reasons I introduced the idea of Horizon 3. And, and the Horizon 2 is the space where we are presented with an opportunity to make some important strategic choices about key themes, key ideas, key strategies that we will pursue, which again is an invitation to be disciplined, disciplined in the way we bring focus to our work and to our resources. I think the most important thing I could share with your listeners is that my experiences, I have to, there are some great phrases, um, ride easy in the saddle, wear it like a loose garment. I think, I think uh, Horizon 3 especially, maybe even parts of Horizon 2, um, where I, I need to clarify and choose my direction, but not hold on to it too tightly. And I think this is where a word that maybe doesn't get used in business circles all that often, but I think this is where grace comes in. I think that some of the best things in our lives we don't work for. Mm. And, and that certainly has come true in my life, getting married in my 50s for the first time, getting exposed to this world of cognitive and behavioral science when at the time it seemed like a, it, was, it was fighting the vision of the future of marketing that I already had in mind, you know, moving to another country. I think one of the biggest lessons I've had is uh, there's some saying in the military that uh, the minute the boots hit the ground, the battle plan is irrelevant, but the planning was essential. (laughs) So I think that, I think my experience is that I need to plan and I need to be open to the universe bringing me other gifts and challenges. I believe the source is um, our President Eisenhower, who said that um, plans don't mean very much, but planning is everything. Yes. And so in the the way you're describing grace, it, it strikes me that you're describing those most important ideas and possibilities that open for you they, they largely appeared from outside or from beyond your map of the world. They were not those things you planned, rather something else presented itself. And for one reason or another, you were prepared to be open enough to um, receive, to make space, to internalize, and to go for the dance with a new permission, new possibility that open for you? I think so. And if I can butcher another saying that I recently heard, it was something like, what's the difference between a warrior and an ordinary man, ordinary person? And it said, uh, a warrior expects challenges every day through, throughout his or her life. But an ordinary person looks at situations as either good or bad. So with that in mind, when you reflect back 
on a 21-year journey at, at PNG. What would you say are the, the important learnings that you took with you from that experience into the life you live today that, that are the, the legacies you, you have chosen to, to treasure? Well, I think nothing, nothing can replace hard work certainly in your early years with a company or organization. And um, I think that my analytical background served me well in those first few years where a lot of, a lot of your initial work is analysis and recommendation development. And uh, I, uh, I loved those early years and I excelled at them. I think that the, the second lesson that I took away was that uh, management did not come naturally to me. Like a lot of early managers, I tried to over control the work of the people working for me and thought I had to be over involved. And I received a great wisdom from a consultant early in my management career who told me that my job as a manager was to be humble and helpful. And I thought, really? <laughs> really? I, I thought my job was to run the show. No, your job is to be humble and helpful. And that really changed how I thought about myself and my role. I think maybe a third learning was to allow my gifts to come forward. And that's obviously different for everybody. And for me, I was grateful that a series of managers saw that I had this innate desire to be a teacher and a researcher and that I enjoyed having one foot in the business, uh, shift the cases, design the future realm uh, of a brand with this desire to be uh, developing expertise in marketing as a craft and teaching that expertise around the world. And I was very fortunate to be able to go around the world and, and to teach different theories of marketing and to allow that expertise, to allow my gifts to come forward such that at some point in time, then they, they became undeniable. And so I think allowing one's gifts to come to the front, uh, it's almost like that function on, mic on Microsoft uh, PowerPoint, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bring image to the front, bring image to the back, <laughs> you know, when you're working in layers, it's almost like, allow the gifts to come to the front. And, and I'm grateful that I had some managers who helped me uh, do that. And then I, I would say the, the final big learning from my years at P&G is don't be afraid to, be to have your thinking disrupted. I mean, everything I'm doing now came to me because a colleague and a friend of mine disrupted my thinking. And I had to pivot on the spot after years of work on another approach. I had to pivot and rethink the work that we were doing and the theories. And, and now those theories and, and science are the bedrock of my consultancy. Right. In, in the third point that you made, which was allow the gift, your gift, your talent to come to the foreground, was that a situation where others recognized your gifts, 
you say, managers and, and mentors and helped you discover and hone this? Or was it more that you were given the space and you came into more of a sense of realization inside out that, yeah, this is an area that you will excel in and, and you decided there and then that you were going to dedicate and bring even more focus, conscious focus to, to this craft? I think it was really the former. I think a couple of uh, different managers allowed me to focus uh, on what internally at P&G you might call capability building. And uh, to the extent that it was the second situation that you described, it was, you know, what kind of side projects was I taking on quickly and easily? And, uh, you know, it's probably a good, a, a good thing to analyze for anybody, which is where do I gravitate? Where do I gravitate in my responsibilities? What kind of projects do I want to take on? And I think I, I had some managers who saw me wanting to take on first this, this expertise in innovation capabilities, particularly for commercial functions. And I had colleagues in the technical functions who wanted to partner with me. So, I, I, you know, it probably was a mix, but I, I have to credit some of my managers at the time who um, pushed me to pursue that area. Well, and the insight and the learning from that, Daniel, is that often the, the biggest or, or, or most meaningful and most significant legacy that we live really relates to the, the people that we have touched and the people that we have enabled to find their sweet spot and their convergence zone of talent and passion because that's that really is long-lasting because when you help somebody find that zone you change someone's life for uh, the rest of their life in terms of what they are then able to do i couldn't agree more and actually um the former ceo of of png bob mcdonald in his list of leadership principles one of his principles uh, that I always resonated for me was there's no more important job for us as leaders than to put people in the right jobs. And so I, I feel like people did that for me. I, I also have to add, he has another leadership principle, which is not everyone will make it on the journey. Mm. And I, I find that strangely <laughs> inspiring. I mean, I didn't make it on the CPA journey and that was a blessing. Right. right? And, uh, I didn't make it on the get yourself married journey in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, but that was a blessing. And now I'm with the person who's perfect for me. And at a time when I can emotionally be present and, and flexible in, in a family. So, you know, um, and I have coached people who I cared about deeply over the years, and they just didn't make it. It wasn't for them. Uh, and, and I think without sounding too Darwinistic, I think that's okay. <laughs> right. Yes. That's, that's well said. I clearly remember our first meeting in Portland, Oregon. We met for an hour and then ended up collaborating for a number of years. And I've never asked you, I think, but I'm going to ask you now, what were for you the, the most meaningful elements and aspects of our collaboration, of our work together? Well, I think first, 
you have a sense of urgency and you transferred that sense of urgency to me when maybe I didn't have it. Uh, you helped me see what was, in, in some ways, your biggest help to me was uh, Horizon One. You, uh, maybe I was, you know, when you work on something like the future of marketing, you can, you can live in Horizon Two and three pretty comfortably. And yet I think you helped me realize the urgency of certain deliverables, the urgency of certain collaborations with different officers and parts of the company. So I think urgency, sense of urgency and, and focus of that urgency on specific deliverables was the number one way in which you, you helped me. I think the, the other way in which you helped me most is I think you quickly saw who I was as a person. And in our friendship and in our collaboration, I felt validated as that whole person, even though we were focused on a very specific corporate task. Um, and that allowed me to be more vulnerable with you as, as my hired coach uh, and advisor. And it, uh, I think, enabled us to, to, to help me grow in those final three years that I was with P&G, which, you know, set up the life and the consultancy that I have now. Right. Well, thank you for these, these kind words. One of the unique um, elements that I've observed in the way you work is the intensity and the volume of process, of input. That, that's quite rare. Um, and whether you know it or not, you have inspired a few segments uh, when I wrote uh, Create New Future. So I'm, I'm curious to ask you if there, there is any part or any segment that resonated uh, with you in a meaningful way because in between the lines and the pages, you are there. Great. You have my address to send the royalty check. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, you know, there are two things that resonated most in the book. One was a reminder and one was a new revelation. The reminder was about the horizons. I, I think that I could do a much better job right now of thinking about horizon two and horizon three. You know, I'm, I'm in my fourth year of a consultancy and I, uh, and it's going very well. Uh, and yet I know that, um, some direction setting is probably needed uh, to grow the capacity of the consultancy. Uh, one of the biggest issues we run into all the time is lack of capacity. So I, I want to do more Horizon 2 and Horizon 3 thinking. The one that I feel like I didn't really get at the time and your book reminded me about was the, the crafting of questions and conversations. I was reminded by how deliberate you are in just about everything you say. And how, there, there's another writer out there who talks a lot about conversations. And I, I really resonate uh, with a well-crafted question and a well-crafted conversation can be all that's needed to significantly advance towards a goal. And I, and I think I want to put more attention 
to the questions that I ask and try to say less, not more. Mm. Well, so here then is a question for you, illegal what you just said, which is, what do you know about how do you learn best and how you best process and internalize information and ideas? I have to ultimately write about something to internalize it. I think while I write, and I'm a fast typer, just as a great consequence of learning typing as a teenager long before I knew how important it would be in this modern society. And so, uh, you know, I type with my eyes closed or I, I type as I think. And uh, as crazy as it sounds, writing memos and documents and contracts where I have to put down in black and white the thoughts and the models, uh, that's how I internalize. I'm not a very good listener. I'm trying to be a better listener all the time. And I'm definitely a visual learner. But even looking at something as someone's presenting it is not enough. I think I ultimately have to do something with it in writing to get clear. That was actually one part of me that resonated with the P&G culture. It's a writing culture. So um, that, that's always served me well. I, you know, what I'm learning to do is to not wait for the last minute to do that writing. Uh, one of the great gifts as simple as this sounds, but one of the great gifts was giving myself permission to write bad drafts. You know, I would just say to myself, okay, come up with a really horrible draft of this, of this thought piece that you need to write. And that always, once I had something down, then I was able to work with it much more quickly. Right. That we've used that during the time of our collaboration, and there are three principles behind that. First of all, it's, it's the prototyping acceleration that, that is allowed with that. And second, it, we use that to, to create a penalty-free uh, space where people do not feel that they need to be defensive about their work. And because they are free from the perfection disease, they are so so much able to accelerate the, the throughput and, and the production. And the third reason is that it really brings more joy and more freedom and more creativity and more liberation to the workspace. So, and I've seen you adopting and practicing that principle with, with your team at, at the time. But let me trace back to the beginning of your answer because you said, I want to put a greater focus on asking questions and on being intentional about my conversations. And you also said that your learning style, your learning preference is to write. So how will you put that to practice? How, what needs to be true for you to take to the next level the kind of intention you have about being more adaptive and deliberate and mindful about the conversations you frame and the questions you use to frame these conversations? I think that I'm going to 
approach meetings on my calendar with some pre-thought about what is the singular question this meeting needs to be about and to see if I can craft a question that could literally carry an hour-long conversation. Mm. That's beautifully stated, Daniel. And if I have one large big criticism of large corporations, small corporations, uh, mid-sized corporations, you'll find in all of those corporations that people go from meeting to meeting to meeting all day long. But if you ask them what is this meeting about? What is the question we are trying to answer? In more cases than not, people are not able to tell you. And if they are, then different people around the table will frame a different question. And I, I argue, I contend that this is one of the reasons why teams of very smart people operate at only 40 or 50 or 60% in a good case of the productive and creative capacities because there isn't that higher level coherence that can be developed with the practice such as the one you just articulated. And going back to our first topic, really the way I acted in meetings and what you're describing is a habit. And really um, in order to create a new habit, you have to give new non-conscious cues, or you have to give the consciousness a reason to change, probably both. So um, for me, becoming a consultant, my time became much more valuable, uh, and I had to get clearer on objectives. But I regularly find myself in meetings where they're, they're not productive. So I, I can't claim victory here. Mm. Um, but I I do like this idea of what singular question is the conversation we need to have based on and, and where that can carry us to the next big deliverable. Yes, yes. So in parallel, a curious pattern and a curious pursuit in your life, because you are describing that in recent years, you have made greater space for grace to find you, grace to find you through other people, in ideas, in your own development, certainly in the transformation of you becoming a family man. And earlier on, while you're still at PNG, you are perhaps seeking grace in a whole other way, which is, I'm guessing, in part what led you to develop the Portrait in Faith project. Tell me how the journey of the, the birthing of this idea and, and how it evolved and what this endeavor meant for you. Well, I was uh, at a summer photography workshop as part of a vacation up in Maine, and you had to develop an idea and start shooting right away. And uh, I thought I was going to do a project on the water rights of a nearby Native American tribe, but uh, they were too far away, and so I needed another idea. And growing up a Jew in the southern U.S., I had a lot of experience with interfaith work, and um, so this idea came to me of portraits in faith. Uh, the, the teacher in the class, David Wells, to whom I'm very grateful, 
suggested that I focus on portraits because I showed up at the at the workshop with a lot of what we would call still life or market shots from around the world. And um, I knew the topic of faith and interfaith work pretty well. So I started uh, going around this little town in Maine and knocking on church doors and asking if I could interview the, the minister, the pastor. There was a synagogue. Nobody was there. <laughs> I, think, I think it was a one-day-a-week synagogue. And uh, that quickly led to me realizing that it wasn't about clergy, that it was about everyday people. That realization came at the first church when I was looking for the minister, but I could only find the custodian until I realized that God had put the custodian in front of me, not the minister. So um, I spoke to him about his faith journey, made his portrait. And then when I got home from that workshop, having done about six, seven portraits, uh, I had to go to Brazil on business. And my teacher, David Wells, said, well, I've got a former student, Tom, in Brazil. Why don't you get him to find more people for you to interview and make portraits of? I thought, great. So I worked with Tom in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then then I needed to be in Japan and Italy. And, you know, I, I had to travel a lot for my PNG job. So I would just add on vacation days after my work trips and I would hire producers and I would say, you know, I'd like to interview and make portraits of three to five people a day for X number of days that I'll be in your city after my business is completed. And uh, this just kind of grew. It grew into the very best part of me and the very best part of my life. I, um, I, people ask me, was I in search of the right religion for me? And, and the answer is no. Growing up in such an interfaith environment, I already had a pretty strong sense that we're all on the same journey and that it's just different clothing and languages and symbols that we use. But if there is a God, as we like to say, then she's a very big God. <laughs> so it really, um, it became the part of me I most wanted to be. And it, and, you know, you might call it ecumenical witnessing. As I heard even atheists speak to me about what they were connected to in a bigger way beyond the self, I, I felt lifted and and um, less burdened, and and um, I was appreciating the artistic part of this because I feel that my photography became better, and um, I was appreciating the marketing production part of this as I was hiring producers and we added video to the content. So uh, yeah, it turned, it's been 11 years and I've interviewed 450, 500 people in 27 countries. And uh, now we publish it only online. I was very fortunate that uh, someone connected me to Ken Burns, the Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker. And his, his advice to me was to have the courage to say this isn't a film. Everybody wants to make a PBS film, but not all content is meant for that format. And uh, true to his guidance, we decided that it was best presented online digitally. And uh, because it's such a massive amount of content, 
we publish one more person story every few weeks. And right now we're up to about 90 stories and portraits on the website. And you say in what you said there that we are all on the same journey as one of the most central learnings for you earlier on, but also through these interviews and conversations. How do you describe to yourself what is that journey that we are all on when you talk to yourself about it today? Well, at a very practical level, the journey overcomes what I consider to be the two great lies of life. <laughs> the first lie is that we are disconnected from each other. Uh, the other lie is that we are disconnected from source, from all that is, from the universe, from God, from the Christ energy, you know, the Buddha's greatest inner wisdom. So I feel that um, that that journey is the journey to realize that we are all one, that we are part of the oneness, that there is no other, you know? So that's a daily struggle for me to, to remember that I am part of the all. And then the, the more practical manifestation of that on a day-to-day -day basis is gratitude. Uh, I was not a very grateful person a lot of the time. I had a real victim personality. And as I started interviewing people, I realized that regardless of religion or circumstances or approach to spirituality, people who had some sense of connectedness to something bigger than themselves were grateful. And I believe that the real message is that gratitude changes me and other people and it changes life. And to quote a friend of mine, I once asked my friend, uh, what if there is no God? And she said, we'd still be better off living our lives as if there is one. <laughs> and so I kind of think of, of gratitude as the thing I should practice, even if there isn't a God because my life seems to be going so much better when I'm in gratitude. Mm. So if I can summarize back to you, your theology, you articulated the two guiding principles. First is that this, is, this journey is about waking up from a lie and that perhaps the different or parallel spiritual and religious paths are just different paths to be awakened from what you framed as the two lies. And, and the second guiding principle is interestingly connected to your marketing work because you are suggesting that more than anything, it's behavioral because you living into the space of gratitude allows you to claim or, or rather engage and embrace the, the best or the highest part of you that you wish to be. Again, guided behaviorally rather than, um, than any other way. Yeah, it's quite the, you'll get a kick out of this. In um, one of the things my mentor, Craig Wynette, taught me was he used to say, do I run from the bear because I'm scared 
or am I scared because I'm running from the bear? And uh, it turns out that we're scared because we're running from the bear. And uh, I think most people know that it's not think, feel, do, uh, but people would be surprised to hear that it's actually do, feel, think. That's the order in which the processing happens. And, uh, and you'll even be happy to know that there's a Jewish concept from this, which is what we call na'asev nishma. <laughs> do, and then you'll come to understand. And so, yes, I find that if I practice gratitude, I have things to be grateful for. Right, and, and to be clear that I understand and the listeners understand what you mean in that message from uh, Greg Wynette, which what it says is that because you're running, you physiologically and biologically introduce the cues of fear, and that is why you're afraid. Am I getting that correctly? Maybe. The, the message is we are programmed biologically to survive. Right. And so without thought or feeling, if I see bear, I run. And then I process the feelings and then the thought. Okay. I'm being chased by a bear. So it, the, the, the idea is that we are programmed for action. And more times than not, the action comes before the feeling and for sure before the thought. Right. There will be, of course, those that will listen to this conversation that will say, you are not meant to be running when you see a bear. <laughs> right. You, are, you are meant to be standing tall right. to, be, look, to, be, uh, to appeal to be a, a bigger bear than a bear. No, that's only a black bear. Uh, brown, <laughs> a brown bear, you want to drop to the ground and cover the back of your neck in a fetal position. But that's, that's irrelevant. My other colleague, uh, Dr. Pete Foley, likes to tell the story that Charles Darwin would frequent the zoo in London and would go to the cobra cage or uh, whatever it's called. And he would stand in front of the glass and try not to lurch backwards when the cobra came at him. Hmm. And he was never able to do it. The, you know, the programming in our cells for survival and procreation is just so very, very deep. So uh, again, uh, a lot of times, well, two different conversations. If, if you're a marketer, you want to trigger the behavior even more than the thoughts and the feelings. Right. And, and if you're a spiritual seeker, what I've learned is I should just get started with the desired action and the feelings will follow. Mm. Or I've, I've heard it said, right feelings follow right actions. Yes. Or, or as, I, as I heard a rabbi say, don't ask me if the Sabbath is meaningful. Observe the next 52 and then tell me if it's meaningful. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Daniel, this is um, a conversation about creating new futures. So my question to you as we come to landing, where will you be in 10 years? Wow. Well, I think in 10 years, I will have created a successful consultancy and been one of the people who have pushed for the adoption of behavioral and cognitive science into marketing. And I hope to have written about that in one form or another. And uh, in 10 years, I hope that my wife and I have successfully launched two healthy boys into their college years. 
And I hope in 10 years that I was able to make meaningful use of the content that I've collected in Portraits and Faith that could help other people heal. I don't think there's anything more important in life than helping other people heal. So I hope to be true to that desire more and more over the next 10 years. Beautifully stated, Daniel. As we bring this to, to close, this uh, very rich exploration with you, always rich explorations with you, any additional parting wisdom that you want to offer as, um, as a message from you, as a learning distillation from you? You know, I think it's on the theme of what I just said, which is somebody once said to me, you, you want to heal. And I said, heal myself or heal others? And she said, you want to heal every part of yourself. You want to retrieve all of who you are. And in so doing, you won't be able to help but heal others. So I, I kind of, I, I kind of, my message is that what I've learned is that I've got to heal myself with any and all tools and people, such as yourself, Aviv, available to me. And in so doing, it won't be possible for me to do anything but help other people heal. So, mm. And courage is part of that process, finding courage, correct? Well, you can have desperation. <laughs> that, that works too. You know, I... I just think there has to be urgency. Yes. Um, otherwise, it's hard to change without urgency. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. This has yes. been a wonderful exploration with you today. Ah, thank you, Aviv. Many blessings. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey. And it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First. Observe your habits and repeated actions. They are more predictive of your choices than attitudes and intentions. In fact, your habits become your attitude. To engender change, look to change your habits. The fastest change process occurs when you integrate the primary wiring of do, feel, think together with think, feel, do to create sustained change, engage both. Second, allow your gifts to come forward. Work from the sweet spot that is the convergence zone of your unique talent and your passion. You're here to express your gifts and passion. And when you do, you create your highest contribution. Third, to help yourself, help the people in your world. We heal ourselves by helping others find their healing process. Often the healing process and the development process go hand in hand. You heal by developing and you develop by healing. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time. <laughs>